Welcome to Thoughts from Home, your conservation podcast from the National Conservation Training Center. We're located along the Potomac River in historic Shepherdstown, West Virginia, and are home to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. For 50 years, the Endangered Species Act has protected America's imperiled plants and animals from the carnivorous green pitcher plant of southeastern wetlands to the western snowy plover of northwestern beaches to the iconic polar bear of the Arctic. My name is Katherine Blalack, and I'm a fish and wildlife biologist at the National Conservation Training Center. Today, I'm here with Mark Madison, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service historian, to learn more about the history of the Endangered Species Act on its 50th anniversary year. Mark, can you briefly share about the history of the Fish and Wildlife Service and why it's important to protect and conserve plants and wildlife? Uh, sure, that's my job. Thank you, Catherine, for that easy first question. <laughs> so the uh, <laughs> Fish and Wildlife Service traces its roots all the way back to 1871, shortly after the Civil War, as the U.S. Commission of Fish and Fisheries. And we were set up initially to help restore the nation's fisheries. And then in the 1880s, uh, a parallel agency was set up called the Biological Survey that was supposed to protect everything that wasn't a fish, birds, mammals, and so on. Uh, the two agencies were combined in 1940 and became the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And the reason it's important to conserve fish, wildlife, plants, and their habitats is they were in dire straits around the turn of the century, 1880s, 1890s. That was a period when the passenger pigeon was going extinct, bison were on their way out in the wild, uh, and there was a real decimation, plants, animals, and their habitats. And it was in reaction to this huge destruction of large swaths of our, our nation's flora and fauna that our agency was set up as a last-ditch attempt to try to protect them for future generations. I was reading about the Federal Protection of Endangered Species, and it dates back to the Lacey Act in 1900. Was this quickly after that act was established, the environmental law of the Endangered Species Act? Well, there was a couple of things that came before the iconic Endangered Species Act of 1973. So you're absolutely right. The first federal wildlife protection was the Lacey Act. And that was really farsighted in a legislation for 1900. It banned interstate commerce and illegally caught wildlife. It really wiped out a lot of poaching and market hunting and game hogs. It also wiped out the plume trade where birds were slaughtered for women's fashion, which was really popular at the end of the 19th century. And then after that, the Migratory Bird Treaty was signed in 1916, and that, that helped protect birds that cross state lines. The beginning of looking at species that cross state or even international lines to try to protect them. So the Migratory Bird Treaty was signed with Canada to try to protect birds that migrate across the North American continent. And then there was a, a law in 1940 that was the first law to protect an individual species, and that was the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act that tried to protect our nation's symbol. And then in the 1960s, there were two Endangered Species Act, an earlier Endangered Species Preservation Act and an Endangered Species Conservation Act, and they really started to set aside some habitat for wildlife and to start listing endangered and threatened species. So what's the difference between the Endangered Species Preservation Act and the other one that you mentioned versus what we have today that was established in 73? Sure. So in 1966, the Endangered Species Preservation Act had the Secretary of Interior list all domestic species of fish and wildlife that were endangered. And it actually gave some funds to acquire habitat for them. 
And some of the first species to, to get habitat were eagles, not surprisingly. Yeah. And then in 1969, there was something called the Endangered Species Conservation Act, and that extended protection to animals threatened with worldwide extinction. Once again, growing the circle of boundaries we protect and protecting animals that might be in Africa and Asia and be threatened or endangered. It was pivotal in establishing those laws. There was widespread uh, concern in the 1960s. It was the beginning of an era where people were very concerned about pollution and other toxins like insecticides like DDT, which were wiping out raptors, bald eagles, whooping cranes, California condors. So even after the beginning of a wildlife refuge system and the Lacey Act, species were uh, declining again in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, And this was part of a broader environmental movement where the American public petitioned Congress to, to begin protecting these species. And at the same time, a lot of conservation biologists were noting worldwide decimation of species. So that was the impetus to try and protect species across all borders, state borders and international borders. It's kind of like an all over effort. (laughs) Yeah, I like to think of it as a expanding circle of protection. So, you know, we started with protecting fish and then, you know, game mammals and charismatic birds, like the birds you described at your feeder this morning. Uh, And then gradually, you know, it expanded to include plants, species that exist beyond our borders, species that might not be as charismatic, like insects and invertebrates and, and some plants. So it's kind of expanding the circle of things we want to protect. Was the first species that went extinct the passenger pigeon? Is that correct? There were probably other species very narrowly endemic species like dodo birds and so on that were found just on one island or the giant auk and so on. But the big one in the U.S., you're absolutely right, Catherine, was the passenger pigeon. Passenger pigeon was striking because it was probably the most populous bird ever to exist on the planet. Um, so as late like as hard to believe, you know, <laughs> it is billions of them as late as the 1870s when the bird was on its way out. We have records of flocks of passenger pigeons in places like Michigan, where there could have been millions of them in one uh, small habitat. So there was a gregarious, really populous species that darkened the sky. They would break the limbs of trees. There would be so many of them uh, landing on these <laughs> trees. And they were made extinct primarily by human hunting within a uh, you know 100 years. So people looked at the passenger pigeon and said, oh my God, what's going to be next? And then they looked at yeah. bison, bald eagles, and said, you know, we really need to protect these species. And it was really the origin of the early American conservation movement. Theodore Roosevelt and some of these thinkers decided we need to protect habitat. They set up the National Wildlife Refuge System in 1903. We need to protect laws like the Lacey Act and the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act. And we need to try to restore these species. Yeah. What was the first species that was listed under the Endangered Species Act? You mentioned under the Preservation Act, there was several species listed, maybe not the invertebrates, but mammals and fish and birds. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So in 1966, the Endangered Species Preservation Act basically said, make a list of what's endangered out there. And the list was compiled by 1967. And that was our first endangered species list. And you're right, they were all vertebrae. That was what was most on people's radar. And it's kind of an interesting list. It had 14 mammals, 36 birds, three reptiles, three amphibians, and 22 fishes on them. And they were all listed at once, but some of the ones that are probably 
more common to people and, and we'd expect to be on there were like the hooping crane and the California condor, and these charismatic birds. There were even a couple of species on there that went extinct, like Bachman's warbler and dusky seaside sparrow, unfortunately, were on that first list and they're gone now. And then some bigger species like the uh, timber wolf, the red wolf, grizzly bear, Florida panther, black-footed ferrets, manatees, all of these species were put on there. Uh, and the American alligator was probably the most well-known reptile. So are you hitting on some success stories there as you're mentioning the different species <laughs> being listed? I think you are. <laughs> yeah, and I think the law itself was a big success. People might not know this, but the 1973 Endangered Species Act was almost universally welcomed, which is different sometimes than environmental legislation today. It actually passed the House of Representatives 390 to 12, which is pretty impressive. But even more impressively, when it went to the Senate, it passed unanimously. Considering the history of just like the fur trade, the plume trade, and just hearing you talk about it, it's such a shift, you know, to hear that that was such a swinging vote. That's really Yeah, cool. it was hugely popular. And I think, you know, initially people were focused on those large charismatic species. This is going to bring back the eagle and the hooping crane and so on. But even in that first list, you know, you had amphibians, you had fishes, um, a whole bunch of species people were much less familiar with. Now, you asked about some success stories. As you introduced me, I'm a historian for the Fish and Wildlife Service. So there's a couple that have historical resonance that are really success stories. The bald eagle is pretty well known. That came off the list relatively recently. But some that are less well known is, uh, for example, the brown pelican. And I like the brown pelican because it was the first species that was protected by the National Wildlife Refuge System. It was a little island, island in Florida. Yeah, yep, Pelican Island protected the Very brown cool. pelican <laughs> down in Florida. This poor species had all sorts of threats to it. People would hunt them. They'd shoot them. Audubon went to Pelican Island and shot them so he could paint them. Uh, and then they got poisoned by DDT and other contaminants. Um, but they really came back robustly and they were delisted in 2009. Another exciting one, that has a historical resonance is the Louisiana black bear. So that's a subspecies of black bear found in Louisiana and Mississippi. Not sure how it got the name Louisiana. <laughs> Mississippi <laughs> lost out on that one. But that was that bear was endangered beginning at the early 1900s. And it was actually a bear that Teddy Roosevelt wanted to hunt. I mean, it was a pretty hard bear to find. And uh, when he went down to hunt it, he actually didn't find any of them. And then the, the guides felt bad. Oh man, the president came down here to hunt the Louisiana <laughs> black bear. He didn't get any. And it was unsuccessful. Found... Well, it was, it turned out to be successful in an unexpected way. They found a cub and they tied a cub to a tree and they said, well, why don't you just shoot this? At least you'll can say you got a Louisiana black bear. And Teddy Roosevelt said, no, no, I'm not going to shoot a cub, release it, let it go. And a cartoonist drew a picture of Roosevelt letting this little cub go and a year later, a toy maker wrote the president and said, hey, I'd like to make a toy and call it the teddy bear uh, oh based on gosh. this cartoon and this story. <laughs> yeah. So the the origins of the teddy bear, the Louisiana black bear, uh, that was a species that was on the first list. And it's been uh, listed as recovered in 2016. So that's really a fun a success story, too. So now that bear happily has recovered. It didn't go extinct, even though many people feared it would. And it's a success story for the Endangered Species Act. Can I give you one more? Yes, this one is really fun. 
So I mentioned that some of the species on the endangered species list are taken off, sadly, because they go extinct. And we hate to see that. But Dusky Seaside Sparrow, Bachman's Warbler, the Ivory-Billed Woodpecker was on the first list. We're not sure if there's any of those left. But there's one little mammal that was on that first list I mentioned named the black-footed ferret. Now, this thing is really interesting. Its numbers crashed because of people poisoning prairie dogs. And these black-footed ferrets like to eat prairie dogs. And if a prairie dog's been poisoned, then they get poisoned. And then they also had a plan. Let me stop you. So why were people poisoning prairie dogs? Oh, because prairie dog holes could cause uh, horses and livestock to break their legs. So it ruined kind of agricultural stuff. Yeah. Exactly. So they were poisoned by our agency and by individuals throughout most of the 20th century. So their numbers got very low and then they were declared extinct in 1979. And when a species is declared extinct, it comes off the list. You know, we can't protect it anymore if it's entirely gone. (laughs) But one prairie dog was rediscovered in 1981, two years after it had been declared extinct. And it was discovered, unfortunately, by a dog who killed it. <laughs> so the farmer's dog <laughs> killed this prairie dog. The farmers took it to a taxidermist. The taxidermist said, this looks like a, a black-footed ferret. Looks like a, a species that we used to have, but is now extinct. And when Fish and Wildlife Service found out about it, we realized they weren't extinct. <laughs> Since the dog had followed, we looked really hard and we found a little colony of them in Wyoming, but they weren't in good shape. They were down to 18 animals were all that was left. A plague ran through them and, and wiped out most of that colony. And they were taken out of the wild, put in a captive breeding facility. And now there's over 300 black-footed ferrets in the wild again. They've come back. They're in a number of locations. And amazingly, in 2021, we cloned the first black-footed ferret. It's the first endangered species ever to be cloned. Oh. Um, and it's a, yeah, it's a new way perhaps going forward for us to help restore species. So it's kind of an exciting story. Not only was this poor little mammal declared extinct when it wasn't extinct and, <laughs> and brought kidding. back from the edge of extinction, but now we're using the most modern science possible to clone them and to try to increase their genetic diversity. That is so remarkable. I wonder yeah, if that's like, a fun they story. laid low for a while. <laughs> After the they might have. And, and then they're like, okay, I think it's good. <laughs> oh, no, it's well, not. <laughs> well, here's another just fun fact about the black-footed ferrets. Um, we're here at the National Conservation Training Center, which is the home of the Fish and Wildlife Service. And we have on display in our museum the very first rediscovered black-footed ferret. So the one that the farmer's dog killed was eventually taxidermed, and it's on display in our museum in an exhibit on endangered species. And everybody called it Lucille. That was its informal name. But it turned out when we got it, we quickly discovered Lucille was a male. <laughs> so it had been misgendered. Um, and its, its official name was, um, I think it was... Uh, Something to the equivalent no, of, yeah, it was, a, it was like, you know, adult. Oh, no, I know what it was. It was stud book number one. So they were giving the ferrets names for genetic diversity and to stop too much inbreeding and so on. It wasn't much of a stud since it was dead, but they all got names in those days. What a cool artifact to be in the archives. <laughs> it's one of my favorites and it's very cute. <laughs> yes, they are so fun to watch. I've seen videos yeah. of them just popping up. <laughs> So once a species is listed under the ESA, what does that mean for the species and what kind of work are we doing to support conservation? That's a really good question. So a lot of species have been listed. We've listed more than 2,300 
species as endangered or threatened. And about 1,600 of those uh, live in the United States. Even this year, in 2013, we've already added 13 new species to the list, including everything from a lesser prairie chicken to a, a clam and a, a type of uh, crayfish. Mm-hmm. Um, so once species go on the endangered or threatened species list, uh, a number of laws go into effect to protect them, basically. First of all, reasonably enough, going back to the Lacey Act, you can't take an endangered species, you can't hunt it, we don't want you transporting it, we don't want people selling endangered species, um, so that's that's prohibited pretty much across the board. Uh, and then we, we come up with a, what we call species survival plans, efforts to bring back species. Sometimes kind of amazingly bring them back to habitat where they'd been fully removed, like gray wolves had been fully removed from Yellowstone, and then they've been restored to Yellowstone, and they're doing very well. So there's a whole series of measures, extraordinary measures, everything from breeding them in zoos to bringing them back to habitat where they once might have existed, but they might have been extinct in that habitat for 50 years. All of these extraordinary measures go into effect to try to uh, protect endangered species. You mentioned passenger pigeons. I think if the Endangered Species Act had a motto, it would be no more passenger pigeons. It, it really <laughs> attempts like to, <laughs> yeah, it attempts to outlaw extinction is really what it does at its basic level. And, it, and the purpose of it is that so future generations can see as diverse a wildlife and habitats as we enjoy. And that, that always struck me as a very noble goal. And uh, I'd say one other thing about the Endangered Species Act and that, you know, we talked about the Lacey Act and the Migratory Bird Treaty and the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act. And sometimes people look at the Endangered Species Act as kind of a an evolution of these earlier acts, you know, just slowly adding more species or more protections. But it really isn't. The Endangered Species Act was really revolutionary. It attempted idealistically to outlaw extinction. For the first time, had our agency trying to restore species to habitats they'd been completely removed from. And uh, it even includes amazing measures to bring species back. For example, there's at least three species of wildlife I know that for a while were completely removed from the wild. Red wolves, black-footed ferrets, and California condors At some point in their species history, there were none in nature. They were completely removed from the wild, and they were brought back in all three cases pretty successfully after being bred up in zoos, yep, in captive breeding facilities. And that was kind of new for us, right, to to take a species out of the wild and then try to bring it back and then reintroduce it. So it really is a break from all the other earlier protections to to kind of an extraordinarily idealistic and ambitious protection. And it's largely worked. The extinction of species has declined tremendously since the ESA was passed in 1973. And our goal is to stop anything else from going extinct. Mm -hmm. I think our agency is commendable for the work that we do. And it's so such a like wide array of things that we do. The challenges are endless. You know, the species that you just listed, 1,600 species listed in the U.S. Our work never ends. But, you know, the things that you're talking about are successes and the recovery of the red wolf and the condor and the black-footed ferret. That's really awesome and exciting. Well, I would just add one thing. So I've been working for the agency for 24 years, and I like to tell new employees, our agency has a very noble mission. 
I think it's the most noble, but I won't be that subjective. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, at, at it, these laws are very complicated. They have a lot of different elements to them and so on. But but basically, the laws that we enforce and the work we do on, on refuges or with endangered species or in fish hatcheries, it all boils down to we want our kids and uh, their grandkids to have the same richness of wildlife that we've enjoyed. And and I don't know how you can be against that mission. And, and most of the public is behind our work on that. All about the next generation. Yep, exactly. We want them to enjoy the biodiversity that we enjoy, that you mentioned seeing outside your window this morning. How is NCTC involved and what role are we playing? That's a good question. So most of our endangered species work is done outside of NCTC (laughs) through ecological services offices where they list species, they come up with species survival plans, they monitor species, they do this in the field where the species live. But NCTC plays a critical role uh, in that we train biologists on how to carry out the Endangered Species Act, how to understand the regulatory language that's in the Endangered Species Act, how to best promulgate these types of species. And then we also have a historic role in reminding folks how these species came to the brink of extinction and the successes we've had over the last 152 years in trying to conserve these species. That's great. We have like a ton of classes on conservation policy and ecological adaptation, habitat restoration and management courses that are helping biologists do their jobs in the field. Yeah, that's a tool we've only had for the last 25 years or so. I think it's made a big difference in our effectiveness. So our main training center is here at NCTC, and we give these biologists the tools they need to deal with endangered species in an ever-changing world. So as more and more species are depending on the implementation of the Endangered Species Act, how do you envision our agency continuing to adapt to the demands of active conservation work? That's a toughie. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah that's the golden question. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I, I knew exactly <laughs> the answer to that, but I can give you some historical perspective. So for 152 years, we've we've tried experiments on how to protect endangered species. The first was probably the Lacey Act you referenced in 1900. After that, uh, we set up the National Wildlife Refuge System, where we kind of carved out habitat. Now it's up to 100 million acres where wildlife comes first, where wildlife is protected. It's our primary mission is to protect, restore, conserve wildlife within refuge boundaries. We also have a national fish hatchery system going back to 1872 that increasingly breeds up endangered species of fish like pallid sturgeon and so on to try to restore them to the wild. But of course, the big change for the 21st century is dealing with a changing climate. We're trying to come up with new ways to protect species as the climate changes. So, for example, the polar bear was put on the endangered species list in 2008. Even though there's still a lot of polar bears left, studies show that the uh, sea ice they depend on to feed, to hunt, uh, even to build their dens on was melting. And so as we looked into the future, it looked like their habitat was going to disappear to a certain extent. So they were the first species put on the Endangered Species Act because of climate change. And so our agency is actually trying something brand new. I just went to a workshop on it about a month or so ago called RAD, R-A-D. And it's saying, you know, for things like endangered species, we have three possible paths to protect them. 
The R in the RAD acronym stands for resist. We can try to resist um, species going extinct because they're being hunted or poisoned or so on. And then the A stands for accept. We can accept that things might be happening like sea level rise or melting ice and try to look for new habitat or adapt that habitat maybe for other species. And then the D in the acronym stands for direct, and that we might try to take some of these changes and direct them towards things that allow wildlife to persist. For example, you might try to create a wildlife corridor that allows wildlife to move inland or move north or move to a, a wetter or a drier area if their habitat changes. So, so we're developing some new tools to try to adopt to an evolving landscape and to you know protect endangered species for the next 100 years. The next 50 in celebration of our 50th. <laughs> <laughs> I guess oh, the, the next 50 will be 100. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> we're, we're farsighted. <laughs> Historians take the big picture. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so there you have it. <laughs> the Endangered Species Act delivers remarkable successes, like we've mentioned here today. Looking back on the law's 50 year history, we recognize that it has helped stabilize populations of species at risk, prevent the extinction of many others, and conserve the habitats upon which they depend. All Americans can take pride in the fact that under the Endangered Species Act, the California condor, the grizzly bear, the whooping crane, the black-footed ferret have all been brought back from the brink of extinction. It has also helped create a better understanding of how human activities can impact the environment and how we can work together to protect it. So thank you, Mark, for joining us today, and I hope you all enjoyed. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the National Conservation Training Center podcast series. If you have feedback, thoughts, or stories you'd like to share, contact us at nctc underscore podcast at fws.gov.